Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast. I'm here with my guy, Eris Pina, CompuBox operator and fellow kind of fight historian, if you will. And we're here to talk about fight history, boxing history, and a little bit of true crime. We're following up on our episode about some cronk fighters that we did a couple weeks ago, and should be a lot of fun. And Eris, how are you, man? Everything's going good, man. Um... Hope everyone enjoyed a long weekend. Uh, I just got back from Austin myself, so a little tired, but I'm really excited to do this episode. Um, you know, there was a lot of good feedback from the last one that we did. We highlighted a lot of um, fighters from the Kronk Gym that, you know, I've been forgotten over the years, but their stories deserve to be told. And, you know, they were told. With that being said, um, we planned on doing a part two, actually, before we even did part one. But since it was, you know, gaining popularity, there was a lot of requests um, from listeners for two fighters in particular to really uh, focus on. And those were two guys that were actually thinking about beforehand as well. So today's um, episode in the Kronk Fighters, we're going to be talking about Ricky Womack, um, guy who almost made the 84 Olympic team and just his life spiraled out of control soon after that. And according to a lot of people, and especially, you know, more so from everybody involved in the gym, Maybe the baddest man to ever come out of the Kronk gym for an hour to suit the bad maze. Oh, uh, well, actually, we were going to do Alvin Hayes. That's, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. Totally, my bad, too. Yeah. That'll be the follow-up. Uh, yeah, with the follow-up. So another one who had ties to the Kronk. Wasn't, you know, he was loosely associated with him, but I won't say he was a complete member. Alvin, yeah. Super bad. Excuse me. Too, too sweet. sweet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, like I Maze was saying, and tongue twister over there. Well, and, and also on top of that, right before we started uh, recording, I mentioned that we're probably going to wind up having to do like a, even a couple of more parts after this, just because of how many, I mean, it's, it's not funny, but because of uh, part of the reason is because there's have been so many fighters that have gone through the Kronk gym. And that's part of the, I guess we had talked about it on that first episode, the, uh, the magic, partially, the kind of double-edged sword of that magic in that Kronk Gym was serving as a beacon in a fairly beaten-up uh, community on the southwest side of Detroit. And, and, and nonetheless, because it had attracted so many people in a fairly beaten-up city and a beaten-up part of the city, that that meant that there was going to be a fair bit of just kind of dirt and tragedy and, and whatnot that came with that. And so that kind of also accounts for the fact that we can get this mixed up fairly easily. Uh, but just getting back and recapping really quickly, Kronk Gym, for anybody unfamiliar, was founded in the 1920s 
But as you can see right over Eris's shoulder, because this guy is the literal, like, he's the kid chocolate of vintage choc- uh, vintage boxing t-shirts. Got one for every year, every day it. of the year. Every day of the year. Yeah, exactly. dude, for real. Not even joking. You might almost have that many. But uh, Crunk Jim over the last, it really came to prominence in the late 60s and 70s. And under the guidance of Emmanuel Stewart, it really rose to fame with a whole bunch of fighters in, in the amateur ranks uh, around Detroit who are competing in a bunch of amateur tournaments and made a name for themselves as being hard fighting, uh, hard training, uh, just very skilled fighters. And a Manny Stewart as a trainer and a manager managing a whole bunch of these fighters, et cetera. So uh, it over the decades came to, it still has a name. It still is very famous even now, like you had mentioned that Kronk episode that we did got a, a good bit of feedback because people still are very familiar with the gym. Yes, I mean, it's iconic when you look at those it colors. It really is. It's the most iconic colors in the sport. Um, people just know that logo right there. It's been plastered everywhere. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's associated. Like, even if you're not, even if you're just a fair weather fan of the sport and don't know too much, you probably come across Kronk and seen, seen that logo and seen it around. It's, it's sold everywhere. It's still very, very popular today. Just yeah. the name alone, more so than the gym almost at this point, you know? Well, and that's, and that's, it's like a, as a brand, you know, like it's, a, exactly. it's, it was very wisely branded. And also I think that that kind of came under the managerial genius of Manny Stewart, who encouraged his fighters, not just to, take care of themselves as fighters, but to also take care of their money and invest their money and try to take care of them with jobs and things like that. And so he, he obviously understood the value of something. And here we are, you know, several years after his death, still talking about Kronk as a brand and the importance of it. And so that's also, again, to emphasize at the beginning of this episode, too, that we're not making fun of any of these fighters. We're not making fun of the situation. We don't think it's funny that any of these tragedies have happened, and we're not trying to cash in on it in any sort of way. But these are fighters that generally aren't going to be getting remembered overall otherwise. You know, these aren't extremely famous champions or something like that, or in some of these cases uh, that we've done the true crime episodes, they were champions, but just their, their uh, story wasn't as well known or what happened wasn't as well known, et cetera. So just to kind of throw that out there as a, a bit of a disclaimer right at the beginning. Totally. And, and rightfully so, man, like these are stories that deserve to be told. You know what I mean? They all had dreams. They all had aspirations things fall, fall on the wayside for whatever reason we all have you know our demons that we have to get through and like you said it, it's just something that like it's interesting enough that like you know they're not talked about enough because the Kronk name is so famous that you know certain fighters just got to take precedence over anyone else and that's how it's usually going to be remembered that like with these guys it's you know it's up to us and other people hopefully to be able to tell their stories yeah it's it's uh it's really Yeah, I I wish that some of these stories were a little bit more well-known, but hey, I guess that's really what we're here for and what we're talking about today. Specifically, one of the fighters who really was getting asked for, getting mentioned in the feedback uh, was Ricky, Ricky Womack, a light heavyweight who, you know, like you had mentioned earlier, almost made the 1984 Olympic squad, you know, came really, really close 
And one of the more prominent articles, if you do a Google on his name, is going to be kind of how his path crossed with Evander Holyfield's. And it's also a really good source source of information, biographical information, um, you know, about Ricky Womack, for sure. Sorry, I have neighbors that just moved upstairs that are that sounds like they're moving the earth around. Um, <laughs> that, that, that's what the that's the magic of, you know, New York apartments. I can't beat it. So um, exactly. That's how I first discovered Ricky Womack. Um, Pat, Pat, I'll ask you this. Remember in the in the ring magazines of the 90s, one of the trademarks they have in each issue would be um, they do that photo um, like photo guessing, like they would have the thing photo trivia. They have the photo up. Can you guess who this is? They give you the little description with some slight hints, but, you know, generally they're not going to give it away. And then you get ranked on one to 10, depending on whatever. So the first time, one of the first um, <clears throat> magazines I got, which was around 1995, um, the photo trivia that month was on Crunk Fighters. And Ricky Womack was one of them that was featured. It's just a little blurb. You just saw a photo of him, but it just, you know, that was it. But so I just kind of kept his name in my memory bank and didn't think much of it because I was still a kid. Um, Fast forward either later that year or the next year, my parents got me Phil Berger's um, punchlines, Berger on boxing. Phil Berger was a very prominent writer on, um, and a great writer. I'm sure you, you would agree with that as well. Um, definitely. Definitely. Who covered boxing back from, I would say, what, the 60s all the way until the 90s, up until his, you know, up until his death, right? Yeah, he, and yes, he was a very prominent, uh, he was like, when we talk about uh, a different era when there were writers who were more dedicated to actually covering boxing, if not solely boxing, then, you know, making a real good living on actually covering boxing. He was among them for sure. So one of his books, Burger on Boxing, was just a bunch of his bylines that he wrote over the years, you know, arranged on like really deep dives on Leon Spinks. I remember one on Nino Benvenuti, um, shows you how far back he went. Um, Tyson Ruddock, a bunch, of, a bunch of various names. But one of them that stood out for me as a very interesting one, and it was a long article, and just even as a kid, I still found it kind of fascinating, was the one that you just alluded to, Pat, was um, about Evander Holyfield and Ricky Womack. And I remember just reading, because I was a big Holyfield fan as a kid, so I was you know, curious to read this, and so I'm reading it, reading it. And I'm hearing about this guy who was basically like, in wrestling, Holyfield would be like, you know, your typical baby face, John Cena, Hogan, whoever, whoever you want to consider him as. And Ricky Womack was the ultimate heel. You know, the brooding bad guy that he's always been feuding with for a long time is finally going to come to a head at some point. And that's how I took it. And that's why I was just like, man, I want to know more about Womack. But I couldn't. It's the 90s. You know what I mean? There was no footage on him. He has been in jail for a number of years at this point. So I had to wait until, you know, the internet age really came about that I was able in probably my high school college years to really find out what was going on with him. But my God, man, what a fascinating story. And what, a, you know, I, what would you call it? Wasted potential. What if, whatever you want to name it, that was Ricky Womack. It's a, it's a definitely, um, as we're seeing a, a recurring theme in a number of these true crime episodes, when we do have information about their childhoods, often it's it's stereotypically bad <laughs> and it's sad and it's not i don't mean to laugh like it's like a nervous laugh i'm not laughing like haha um it's it's truly, like, oh, <laughs> yeah it's it's truly unfortunate um 
you know, Ricky Romack was born in 1961. He initially grew up in Jackson, Tennessee, but his mom took him, his twin brother, Mickey, and their seven siblings to Detroit after uh, his mom was shot by their father. And their father followed them to Detroit, and eventually the problems, the violence between their parents uh, led to the children, all nine of the children being placed into foster care. I mean, and like I said, that's, it's extremely sad. And I'm trying to, rem- I'm trying to imagine being separated from your siblings overall, like in general, but then while being placed in state care, you know, it's not difficult to uh, see how damaging that could be on a person during years when, you know, not to be like fucking Dr. Spock here, but like the children just need love and understanding yeah, and, totally. and not, you know, uh, uh, extreme uh, inconsistency with their home life and stuff like that. So in any case, that's truly obviously setting these children up for a bad upbringing and a bad life, a rough life. It's a tough beginning. Um, by the time Ricky Muamak was 17, he was being sent to prison for armed robbery. And according to this article, prison psychiatrists were more or less saying he was kind of out outside the reach of help. Like he was kind of like, no, like this kid's a cold, he's an asshole. Like he's responding like, you know, by uh, being combative, he's not really cooperating or anything like that in the system. You know, he's like, these, that's it, you know, he's just going to go through the system. And so by the time you're 17 or 18, basically being given up on, that's obviously not good. And that's probably going to affect your outlook. Uh, But in any case, Womack served three years during the stint for armed robbery. And after being released, showed some boxing talent. So he hooked up with Manny Stewart, who kind of took him into his home. And became a father figure for him, as Emmanuel Stewart was for many of those fighters from back in the day. Womack... You know, not to mention being taken into the ward at a young age, like the, the, the home life that he had already was like incredibly bad. You know what I mean? His dad was an alcoholic, other very, very hard issues, um, shot their mom early on. Womack and his brothers and the siblings all witnessed that. You know what I mean? And then after that happened, they, um, his mom took them all, left town, took off, and the dad followed them. Like that kind of happens in, you know, a lot of situations more violence, more anger, more issues followed before finally, like you said, they were taken in. So Womack at that point, you know, he's already seeing more like a lifetime worth of like craziness that people can't even fathom. If, uh, like you said, Emmanuel Stewart, um, God bless the man, he thrived with people like that. That was his thing. He knew how to nurture these, like, these troubled souls, man. It takes a special person to be able to do that, to be able to gain the trust of people like a Ricky Womack or, you know, another trouble fighter that he'd be able to like handle or whatever it may be like and and be able to nurture them and try to gain their trust and like guide them into a more productive life and you know there's going to be a lot of speed bumps along the way but yeah. you're still able to do that man steward was that type of dude that was his thing yeah he well in that we already did one episode talking about three fighters with trouble beginnings and mm-hmm. issues that you know manny steward had his hand in pretty much everything <clears throat> just about all the fighters in the Kronk, like he knew who they were or, you know, oh, had yeah. some hand in uh, recruiting them or at least training them. So that's what he, yeah. Like, like you said, that was kind of his specialty. Um, 
And according to a bunch of people, Womack was sometimes quiet and nice, but he could be really manipulative and childish uh, if he didn't get what he wanted. And um, like, I mean, that that, uh, article that you were talking about, where it opens up, like one of the first things that it says in that article was that Evander Holyfield claims that Ricky Womack walked over and stepped on his toe or stomped on his toe or something like that before their fight uh, to the point where Evander Holyfield was so upset by it that he was brought like to like frustrated or angry tears. And that some little kid nearby was like, look, daddy, you know, that man's crying, which Mm -hmm. is kind of like, I tend to believe a story like that because he's like not making himself look good in that story, you know, but in any case, uh, things like that, it were just, you know, trying to abandon his image. First off, getting stubbed on your toe hurts like hell. We can all admit that. I don't care how tough you are. If you're the baddest man on the planet, you stub your toe, whether it's your big toe or your baby toe, your ass is going down. All right. I've, we, it's, it's happened to the best of us and to walk over your opponent at this point walks up you're just sitting there minding your business and a guy like ricky womack i mean if you go to his box photo just look at it he's intimidating as hell and just stomps on your foot what do you and you can't really do anything about it at the point and then he just kind of gives you like a fuck you look on top of it afterwards you do you know that's a lot to handle to go into a fight a lot to handle i you know Evander Holyfield is one of the most, like, you know, as we've grown to know him, man, like a person, like, calm under pressure, just everything that he's handled his career, like, he's always been, like, a very composed guy. For him to get unnerved is, like, to really, you got to do something to him. Ricky Wilmer. Except for that one time where he he bit an opponent in the amateurs. Oh, that's right. <laughs> wait, 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 what fight was that? I'd have to look at the opponent. I can't remember. He but Evander. Yeah, oh, yeah. That was the that was like the supreme irony in him getting bitten by Tyson was that he yeah he bit somebody else in the amateurs I can't remember who it was I'd have to look but in, but anyway but, but no back, yeah. but that's not to and I'm yeah, not trying to argue with what you were saying like you're oh no no no, no no it's just but like well back to your point too about Ricky Womack and his attitude um, another thing that they mentioned in the article a thing that you know they noticed. Like he, like you said, he could be nice, you know, he could be polite and stuff like that. Emmanuel Stewart's wife took a liking to him. Um, you know, he kind of looked at her, like he looked at Stewart as a father figure. He kind of looked at Stewart's mom as a mother figure. But things that started happening, whereas when they would go on competitions, you know, in the amateur system and stuff like that, Womack would, I don't know, you know, just act out a little bit. Like, you know, they would go to places and things would get stolen. Yeah, he'd just fuck happy. off. Like, he, he would just, just yeah, like... He, would start, he would just start doing things. Yeah, just start slagging off and doing things. And when, when that happened, you know, like, eventually people would realize their shit got stolen. You know, X, Y, and Z, they find out it was him. And then nine times out of ten, they said what would happen was Womack would walk up sheepishly, have his head down, walk up to the people and, you know, give the belongings back. But that was already troubling behavior. And then... <clears throat> I'll bring up one part of the article right here. It was a while in Tokyo on an amateur competition, Womack and two other amateurs, Mark Breland and Steve McCrory. Mark Breland, obviously, maybe the greatest American amateur of all time. And Steve McCrory, who we've, uh, we've talked about in previous episodes, another Kronk alumni and um, a fighter who actually went on to win a gold medal at the 84 Olympics. But we're in a store when a merchant showed him a wristwatch. Womack picked up the watch and walked out. Just picked it up and walked away with it. 
leading to Breland and McCroy being, being detained by police until, as Stewart recalled, the manager trainer could straighten out the man. And just things like that. Like, I've been around people like this in the gym, too, like other little things. Like, you have, you know, because he was a bully. And, you know, Womack knew he was a big guy. He was a strong guy. And he, could, he was able to, like, intimidate other people because no one was, like you said before, no one really wanted to stand up to him. So if they be in the gym and he had his boombox the loudest, who's going to tell him to turn it down? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, like, I, I think that people know now that uh, if you're on, like, an amateur team or a gym's team, mm-hmm. every so often you might travel to, like, a different city, maybe even a different state. Um, but back back in the day, doing international travel for, like, a big team or something like that wasn't necessarily, you know, that wasn't that, wasn't that out of the ordinary. And All so... All the yeah, time. Like another incident they were talking about was that apparently uh, when Womack found out that one of their events in the, and then the Soviet Union wasn't being televised, he tried to leave and said that he wasn't going to participate because it wasn't being televised and all sorts of shit. So he was just, he was a baby. He was just a, yeah. he was a gigantic baby. You know what I mean? Like he, um, I don't think it was so much a diva as it was just that he was uh yeah, like he he just wanted the things his way. And when they didn't go his way, he was just a jerk about it. And anyway, uh, when it kind of started going downhill, according to Manny Stewart, um, and, you know, again, fairly believable in the situation, I think, uh, was that he began dating a much younger girl and he started spending his money on said girl and just paying even less attention to the things people told him to do. Um, and he was making good money. He, uh, you know, had had really done well as an amateur. Um, he was an amateur standout, nearly made it to the, 18, uh, the 1984 Olympics, like you had said. He had come uh, within one win over Evander Holyfield as make, of making it to, I think it was the trials. And then from there, you know, he, he could have potentially gotten a spot on the Olympic team. But even so even after not getting that he signed a six figure deal, a promotional deal when he turned pro in the 1980s, six figures is still pretty serious. Even now, even now it's still pretty serious. You know, Can be six figures, I'd be hyped, but yeah, totally in the eighties oh, as a, as a pro fighter in the eighties and you didn't make the Olympic team. Cause look at other standouts who almost made, who almost made the Olympics like Aaron Pryor, look how he turned pro turned pro with nothing, absolutely nothing. So for Womack, like you said, to get six figures, and not on top of that, he got himself a car from Stewart. Stewart put him up free lodging where he didn't have to pay for rent. And um, like he took care yeah, of He was getting like an allowance and shit. Like yeah. he was, yeah. yeah, he wasn't, he was getting taken care of like a he number was, of absolutely. Were. He was getting taken care of totally. Yeah. And that's, and that's another just kind of aspect of this that probably goes under the radar a little bit. <clears throat> and it's something that gets, uh, either forgotten about or overlooked uh, is that in a, in a lot of these situations where a fighter is really high level as an amateur. Um, and that's not to, that's not to, I'm not like taking sides of managers and promoters and stuff like that. Cause you know, 99% of the time when I'm take the fighter side, mm-hmm. but even so um, like in a lot of these situations, the fighters literally like being paid to fight, even if they're not making money at, you know, during the fights 
you know, like, how are they living otherwise? You know what I'm saying? So a lot of the times the managers and promoters, once you can afford it, are taking care of the fighters. You know, that's just kind of historically how it's been. And again, that's just part of part of the story and part of the equation that gets forgotten about quite a bit. And Manny Stewart did that for a lot of fighters. Especially if the, if the fighters want to make sure they're going to be on the straight and narrow. So exactly that, exactly that yeah you can't just be like all right now just you know come back tomorrow but then no, like, i don't no, care no, what no. you're doing the rest you, you gotta like go the extra mile that didn't take care of it to make sure every all tracks are covered yep well and and also i think that we've seen countless times among some of these true crime episodes but probably some of the fighters the cronk too despite manny stewart's efforts um they just didn't know what to do with the money and the money burned a hole in their pocket. They didn't know how to invest it or even after being taught to do it still wouldn't do it just cause it would just, it just didn't stick for whatever reason. Um, and so, yeah, dude, six figures in the 1980s. That's pretty fucking serious. He fought to a draw in his debut, which was probably a, something of an anticlimactic debut, but even so, it happens, you know, sometimes people lose in their debut or get a draw or whatever. But then he went on to win his next eight fights going, you know, 8-0-1, which is a highly respectable record. I mean, 8-0-1, I'll take that record for any prospect, you know? Especially in the 80s, man. I mean, and for a Kronk fighter. Um, yeah, light heavyweight, you know, above middleweight. That's, that's good shit. Not, no, it's not bad at all. And for a Kronk fighter, they're not being matched against absolute cupcakes either. You know, as you look in 1985, if you go to his, um, if you look at his record, he ends up fighting Uriah Grant. Uriah Grant at that point only had a handful of fights, but he ended up being a cruiserweight mainstay for a very long time. We mentioned his um, fiasco fight with Tommy Hearns, but before all that happened, um, he was a longtime contender, always gave everybody hell, and then actually briefly held on the IBF uh, championship at uh, some point in the 90s, so... I mean, you have to give it at least, and I know that like this doesn't mean anything because for the most part, like they're undefeated with only a, a couple of fights. But mm -hmm. looking at the guys he fought, you know, one and oh, two and oh, three and oh, three and one, six and two. I mean, they're at least winning records. And I know that's like a fucking low bar here, dude. I, I know, I know. But again, we've discussed it too. But uh, like, like with the different errors, these guys aren't like most of them aren't like bums. And with the Kronk fighters, they were never going to be matched against absolute softies over well, and over. You would always want to make sure they're developed. You go and you look yeah. at the vast majority of prospects now, and that's not to pick on fighters now. I, you know, even in other eras, and you look at the guys that they're fighting, like you know, their fourth, fifth, sixth fight, and they're not winning records. You know, like it's it's like a, you know, they're like two and nineteen or some shit like that. You know, like they're they're fighters who know how to fucking lose. And anyway, there's a big difference between fighters who don't nothing like an opponent, and there's nothing else in sports like an opponent in boxing. <laughs> yeah, dude, for like sure, a professional opponent, yeah. for sure. <laughs> Although I will say, there's there is a caveat here that in this like early '80s era, there is still in this time the potential for a couple of fighters to be fighting under like pseudonyms or some exactly, shit. Exactly. Yeah. And totally. So there is that is possible. That is possible. Just throwing that out there. No, but, um, you know, 8-0-1, it's, it's a good record. Uh, it's a very good record, especially for a light heavyweight. Um, you know, you're talking about the success of Vander Holyfield at this time, who was, a lot of people might forget, at light heavyweight and, you know, bulked up from, from his pro debut onward. 
Um, and so, and on top of that, the 1980s, early 1980s, really hot for the light heavyweight division, totally. still just fucking red hot from these dudes we were talking about uh, somewhat recently, Matthew Saad Muhammad, you know, I, I mean, you know, Marvin Johnson, all this. And at this point, too, <clears throat> around 1984, 85, that we're talking about, the division was kind of open. Michael Spinks had just moved up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? People were like clamoring now for that number one spot. And it wasn't like there was absolute killers there. Marvin Johnson had just reemerged. Uh, you had Leslie Stewart. Um, Prince Charles Williams hadn't come on the scene. Bobby Chez was just rising. Like, there wasn't really anybody out there that was like overly, like, you know, like overly killer right there that to say if um, Rick, Ricky Womack really decided to take his stuff seriously and really put full effort on it, that he could have made a big splash in that division. Well, unfortunately, we had a little bit of a problem Yeah. in late uh, 1985. It was actually December 30th, the day before New Year's Eve. Uh, Ricky Womack apparently robbed two Redford Township video stores. And at one store, he pistol-whipped the clerk. Yep. And at another store, uh, in, in the middle of his robbery, a customer walked in. And it's the way it was described kind of sounded like he freaked out and he shot the customer in the leg. Whether intentional or not, I, I have no idea. But either way, they've got a fucking bullet hole in their leg. So who cares? Um, and so he winds up for this, for this two armed robbery and also, uh, you know, I guess assault with a deadly weapon or whatever the charge was. I didn't see. Nonetheless, serves 14 years in Michigan State Prison, released in November of 2000 after several unsuccessful attempts at getting paroled um former boxing commissioner Stuart kirschenbaum uh, actually picked womack up from prison and womack's comeback was very quickly underway upon his release reports from earlier in his prison sentence said he had been separated from other prisoners for attacking them for fighting yeah oh yeah yep uh that he had gotten in a bunch of different trouble but later on supposedly he had found jesus uh he had been watching the 700 club with that guy i think his name's pat robertson oh oh boy it's a religious fucking abomination don't ever watch it um but in any case he was watching this show, which is like an ultra, like religious, like as absolute crackpot fucking bullshit. Stuff that was like really popular in the late eighties. I just remember seeing them all over mm-hmm. the place. Yeah, they're crazy. And so he w- watched this show and apparently found Jesus. And um, uh, I guess at some point during his prison stay, he became a quote unquote model prisoner. To the point that some of the guards at the prison gathered together to watch the first fight of his comeback in March of 2001. Um, So he fought from March to November of 2001. He fought four times and apparently looked okay, if not pretty good in a couple of the fights. Uh, but he he didn't really fight anybody that good, so I I don't know how you gauge it. Um, um, but like the the reports were not super detailed. I found them. There were reports of his fights. They just weren't super detailed. They didn't really describe the action. They just said physically he looked good, uh, 
and it was kind of some hyperbole about, you know, Ricky Womack is back. It's his comeback. You know, he's, he's back when obviously he was in terms of age, well past it. And, but he was back at heavyweight. And so I think that that was probably a big factor. You know, the fact that he's back at heavyweight and definitely at his heaviest. Um, Still shredded though. Yeah. No question. He, it, it, it's sad, man, because like you said, like when his, when before, right before he went to, right before he went to prison for the armed robberies, like he was a big spender. That was his thing. He was spending a lot, doing a lot of crazy things. And it, like anyone who goes out there and starts spending, like Broner, for example, you know what I mean? Before Broner, Broner thought he was Mayweather before he really started making that Mayweather money. Like he thought he gets a few million and starts blowing it instantly. And start struggling. It's it's like I mean, that scene in Dumb and Dumber where he's just like, "Here you yes, go, here you go, go. exactly, here, here you go. go." And it's yeah. like, you know, you're gonna Absolutely. go fucking broke so quick like that. And they said that's what happened to Womack. He had nothing, and by the time he got desperate and you know started resorting to his other things, that's when he started, um, you know, with the crimes that he ended up getting going to jail for. But after he gets out of jail now, right? It's, it took a long time. Like you said, he got into fights. He did all kinds of stuff. He had a good team behind him when he got out. Um, he was with a woman who he ended up marrying, um, who, who was very loyal to him. Um, the, the person that was backing him, the manager, the manager that was backing him, like you mentioned. And they also got, and this is a pretty key component as well, uh, James Tony's former, former trainer, um, Bill Miller. You know, a guy who went all the way back to the Ezra Charles age is a very, very sage trainer, great mind for boxing. And at that point, still, you know, even though he's elderly, but still with it enough that he can be a key component for that corner. So he had a lot of promise. People were excited for him. Womack came out of jail looking ridiculous. I mean, probably even better than he did when he before he went to jail I and mean, before he went to prison, because like all he you know, all he did, like he was shredded from head to toe. And he, you know, he didn't look his age. Obviously, he was still preserved, and there was a lot of hope for him. Yeah, he, uh, you know, he, at heavyweight, it's one of those things where it's kind of like uh, the narrative is always, you're, you're a punch away. Mm-hmm. If you have the punching power, then, you know, if you're, if you're remotely durable and you have the punching power, then there's a chance. You know, there's always that kind of Cinderella potential at heavyweight, even though, you know, we know the reality at this point. And like I said, he fought four times. So, I mean, I think that at that, I, I vaguely remember the, I vaguely remember people mentioning him on like message boards, but I'm not going to lie. I never like saw anything. I don't remember how, you know, he looked or anything. I just remember people mentioning it. I swear there's footage. There was footage of YouTube. I don't know if it's still there or if you looked for it earlier today, but like there was YouTube footage of his comeback fight. One of them. Might might have been his last one, or something. I'm not gonna lie, I didn't look. I should have. But there, <laughs> I mean, there was something though. I remember years. I'm I'm not gonna lie. It's been a long. It's probably been years since I looked for it. But there was footage of one of his comeback fights on YouTube at one point. Um, one of them did happen on the ESPN undercard, ESPN two undercard, because I think the whatever fight that was being televised, the guys looked out of shape, and Max Kellerman alluded to seeing Ricky Womack on the undercard. Yeah, and saying, see, I. Hey, when I looked like a week ago and like, yeah, I didn't specifically look for his, the Chapman fight, but I saw the, I saw the, uh, the Holyfield Olympic box off. Like yeah, that's yeah. up there, but not, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't think anything else. Probably got taken down. Like I said, this was a, some years ago. But. 
Yeah. So uh, in November 2001, that's the Willie Chapman fight. His final mm-hmm. fight comes in at a career high, two, or, uh, 2,206 pounds. Um, and it, like I said, wasn't really given much of a description, even in Detroit newspapers, it just wasn't really, it wasn't really mentioned a whole lot. And then on July 19th, or I'm sorry, January 19th, 2002, Womack apparently committed suicide by shooting himself in the head. And that's according to literally the only report on it that I can find, um, that there were other reports that had mentioned him committing suicide, but not the method. And I don't, I'm not trying to get gruesome. I'm not trying to get detailed in that regard, but me, I am curious what happened. Um, but there's not really much reflection as far as what anybody believes, or at least anybody close to him believed happened. Yeah. Um, what you said is probably correct is obviously, you know, what most was everyone says, um, he was depressed, you know, there's, there's a few articles out there and things that mentioned that said he wasn't in a good place of mind, especially after it might've been the Chapman fight. I, I'm, I'm assuming it was the Chapman fight that he was, his performance, he felt, you know, obviously I think it was almost like he realized it wasn't going to be, you know, nothing was going to be the same. And he struggled in that fight. And he was always a person, like you said, he was always, like very sensitive, you know, and I think that he was like, you know, always worried. He was worried about the crowd. He thought people were making fun of him. He had all these other thoughts going in his mind. He was struggling. He was struggling out in the real world. He's trying to contain this and trying to go on with his career. But, you know, what he was able to do um, in the 80s before he went to jail, what he was able to do in the box office with Holyfield and, you know, compete at the highest level with the amateurs, it wasn't going to be the same anymore. And trying to do it as a heavyweight, as an undersized heavyweight at that, you know, in his, in his early 40s, late 30s, early 40s, it was an uphill battle that he, I think he realized quickly though, that it wasn't, that it wasn't happening and combining that with all kinds of other factors, trying to adjust out of jail and all this stuff, it, it, you know, and I, it unfortunately overwhelmed him and it, you know, and it's sad because this happens to other people and, you know, it's a tragic case because there were people out there who did care for him. You know, he had a whole support team after him and they were really doing their best to try to make it work. But sometimes these people, you know, people are just, you can't, it's hard to say, but like some people just, you can't save them. You know what I mean? And no matter what you do, but Womack had that support system behind him. Well, and yeah, that's, that's what's kind of like, you know, I'm, I, I don't really prescribe like destiny or fate or oh, no, I don't no, really no, believe yeah. in that kind of stuff really. But at the same time, uh, stories like his do kind of give compelling arguments for it because like you said, he came from a really bad place but then was at some point kind of like there was intervention. There was people stepped in and gave him, uh, you know, at least, almost. Yeah, yeah, what you, what we, you would imagine somebody in that situation would need and pretty much yeah. everything they would need and at least financial stability. And, you know, the, the idea that somebody cares about them and wants them to do well. Um, but perhaps something just from that upbringing was broken at some point and it just couldn't be repaired. I, I don't know. I don't know how it works, but it, it definitely is a, a sad case. And it's too bad, man. Cause like I said, if he had really developed in the late as a light heavyweight after he got out of there, he probably could have made some noise. The division was wide open. Michael Moore, did wasn't going to come out for about a few years. Um, Bobby Chez was talented, but he was obviously beatable. Um, the champions around that time were all J.B. Williamson. You know what I mean? Like, 
I'm just giving you an example of what we were dealing with at this point. So yeah, that that post, like the mid '80s, was not yeah. the greatest time for light like, heightweight. No, after no, after no, like that early you know? '80s burst, it was like, eh. As most yeah. as most hot things go, like with the welterweight division. Remember what when you had Delahoya, Trinidad, everything like that, and then like it kind of cooled off slightly. You had Mosley, but no one really Mosley didn't really have competition until Vernon Forrest came around a couple of years later, and then it cooled off for a while. But like. Same thing, the light heavyweight division after Michael Spinks kind of left, everybody was kind of scrambling, but no one was really dominant, you know. And it was it was kind of wide open, and it and it really like and it, it, it's not like, it's not difficult to imagine he could have done something, yeah, totally. Because after that, man, Virgil Hill became the dominant guy for a number of years, so and Hill was from the same class as Womack, I'm sure they knew each other well, they probably did, yeah, being among you know national and international amateur. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's definitely a sad case. And um, you know, and unfortunately it's not like we're gonna move on to a happy case in two sweet. But days. I mean it's it's but the and the one we're talking about was well, what are we moving to right now? Uh Alvin Hayes. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's not and I'm not gonna lie, it's not like uh we're all of a sudden going from sad to happy or anything like that, but definitely a different case. A colorful. Colorful yeah, word. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Definitely a little bit more of a, a king of pop type of case. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually did. I did find a little bit more biographically on Alvin Hayes than I think otherwise. So anyway, I'll I'll go through some of the stuff that I found real quick before we get to his uh, the stuff we know of his career a little bit more. He was born in 1958. Uh, but unfortunately, he had a fairly stereo stereotypically bad upbringing as far as like when you think of somebody who's had a really shitty childhood, unfortunately, just kind of tick the boxes. Uh, he grew up poor on the east side of Detroit. His father was absent, um, and he was basically more or less allowed to run the streets. Uh, by the time he was old enough to, you know, he was acquainted with the juvenile court system, and he said he was actually shot in the back of the head once and shot at several times. And that on a, a separate occasion, he was shot at and his girlfriend, and I think he said his cousin, were both with him and shot. Um, and it sounded like everybody made it because he didn't say they were killed. But I have no idea. The point is there was a lot of bullets flying around, needless to say. Um, but at 17, he was locked up for four years for violating probation and carrying a pistol um and i mean you could i guess kind of see why he was carrying a pistol if people were shooting at him all the fucking time uh but he started boxing actually at 21 when he had right around when he'd gotten out of prison and he'd already earned the nickname too sweet because according to everybody he was a good looking dude and he was uh you know just kind of a flashy guy Eric. and so he went to cronk after he was released from prison he said they didn't like him he didn't like them uh, so he went to another gym, Brewster, same thing. He didn't like them. They didn't like him. He wound up at a gym called Connor, C-O-N-N-E-R, and fought out of there as an amateur. Um, but at some point, he joined the powerhouse gym in Highland Park, Detroit, and fought out of there for most of his early career. Um, and so, like you had said, he was making good money early in his career and apparently had more money than I guess he was ever used to having at that point. 
and he used to enter to the ring in a Michael Jackson outfit and a choreographed yes. dance routine. And dude, they have shirts. I want an Alvin Hayes t-shirt. It's out there somewhere. All you right? hear that? All you hear that, boxing of- people? Eris wants that too sweet t-shirt. That's out there, all right, man. All of his cornermen will wear it. It's a red one with like a whole outline drawing of it. It says Two Sweet Haze across, and I need one for my collection. Bad. There's got to be one out there. Has to be somewhere out in Detroit. If there's any Detroit listeners who have any connections to back in the day to Two Sweet Haze and his gang, find me that shirt. I'll pay you top dollar. Anyways, yeah. Um, <laughs> he A very, very colorful character for the time, all right? And during a time when being out there and colorful like that and like really just like pulling on a whole dance routine and dressing up either like michael jackson or like zorro or whatever you would do was pretty much out you know was uh not of the norm you're gonna get some um, old white grumbling commentators well it's all right it's very <laughs> rare footage all right you, you don't see i mean it's it's not on youtube I, i've never seen it on youtube um a loyal listener of the show and a friend of mine um martin s um superstar jnl that we've uh, talked about before on the show from england he has a copy of it it happened on the uh, hagler hearns undercard and you know how those major pay-per-view shows you like leonard like leonard hagler hagler hearns um excuse me like any of the uh, any of the four kings fights no one ever really talks about the undercard because obviously everything's just talked about for the main fight you can find some, some of the undercard fights on youtube they're out there Juan Domingo roldan was featured on all of them on a, on a bunch of them, Trevor Burbick, John Tate from the first Leonard Durant fight, like various fights are out there. The one fight that I've always wished a good quality, you know, footage of it was on YouTube, and it's never been out there, is Jimmy Paul against Alvin Two Sweet Hayes, Detroit against Detroit. Kronk Jimmy Paul against Alvin Hayes and um, the gym that he was represented at the time, which was clearly wasn't Kronk. And you see yeah, all the cornermen. Powerhouse, I think, at the time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. All of, the, all of his cornermen are wearing, you know, the Alvin Two Sweet Hayes t-shirts that I desperately want. And they had the full-on dance routine. And Pat, like you just said, all these old crumdundry white men are there complaining about it and going, what is he doing? How is he dancing like this? Do you think he can get away with this? And Brewster, no. What do you think about Fall River, Mass? Somehow they brought up Fall River, the, the small shanty town right next to my city where I grew up. I don't know who named yeah, dropped well, that. What the fuck does that have to do with anything? What are you trying to suggest, you assholes? Who, who would name drop Fall River in the in 1985? What? what anyways yeah they were like what about fall river well absolutely not probably not because fall river sucks but yeah so um yeah, like, what, what is, sorry i'm going on like a little bit like that's this is exactly what it was but, yeah yeah i can uh, imagine but, it but, but hayes too sweet hayes bro goes on the full-on dance routine like you said man it is incredible it, it absolutely wipes away um anthony Hendricks, which he did a few years later like he just had because he has his trainer doing it with him, man. They go back and forth the full thing, slap another thing. The guy actually takes his towel out and slaps him, and Hayes spins around with it, like on like on motion, like something you see on Soul Train back in the in the mid eighties. It's beautiful shit. I absolutely loved it. And then he proceeds to get knocked absolutely smooth clean out. <laughs> and and according to folks who were there or have seen it or have it i i don't know but i've seen a couple of people say that it was like a fucking brutal knockout it was it was i've seen a clip of it Uh, martin showed me sent me a clip of it well man he gets smacked like the if when the ring magazine recaps it you see photos of it. you see um hayes 
and his whole Zoro outfit beforehand. And this is why the announcers were getting them mad. Obviously, you know, this again, this is the 80s. Everybody there is kind of like manly man or whatever you want to call it. But um, Hayes was wearing, I think it was like bright pink trunks with like red lettering and stuff like that. And they were just with a pink mask and the whole brigade going on. So they were just like, Ugh. but yeah, you see a photo of him in a ring and then you see him laying there. And it's a normal photo that you've seen a lot of guys like Sammy Serrano, for instance. Remember when he got knocked out by Yatsusumi oh, Mara? Oh, yeah. And you're laying there and then you just have your head up and you got the most lost gaze look in your eye when you're just cuddling. That's, a, that's an incredibly brutal and underrated knockout, dude. Very, very. But you know the face I'm talking about when yes. he gets knocked out, right? He's yeah, laying there and he's just like... Yeah, completely shell-shocked. Yeah. And that's how Alvin Hayes looked when Jimmy Paul smoked him. Rough. He was 22 and 0. I mean, like, he, you know, uh, we're talking about Womack in the 8 and 1, and Alvin Hayes had gotten to 22 and 0. Where... And he was a popular attraction out there, man. And he didn't have bad guys on his name. Edwin Vera Wet was past it, but I mean, he smoked them. 22 and 0, and they're gunning for a title shot now. And 22 and 0, you're probably gunning for a title shot then at, at that point, too, you know? So 22 and 0 today, you'd be a two, you're already a two division world champion. Yeah. If you're, well, if you're Lomachenko, you're 22 and 0, you got like fucking nine world titles under your wrist. Yeah. Already. It's, yeah. yeah whole, totally. <laughs> You've still fought no, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's uh 22 and 0. It's a, that's a very, that's a very respectable record. I mean, obviously, uh weren't a whole lot of great fighters under his record at that point but 22 and 0 is still pretty pretty serious but mm -hmm. nonetheless um he actually so what it what had wound up happening however was before that so what kind of according to him set him on the wrong path was a fight in 1983 against a guy named Carlos Santana not at all that Carlos Santana but he sustained a broken hand while winning a decision. And he said after that fight, he was given Tylenol with codeine for his injury. And he eventually became hooked on the codeine and then started drinking liquid codeine, which is like, wowza. Yeah. And then went from drinking liquid codeine to eventually moving on to cocaine and crack. And according to him, after his loss to Jimmy Paul, his manager left him, his manager dropped him. And so he was offered, I guess, while he was, you know, uh, commiserating or, you know, while he was moping around, you know, after losing his manager, mm -hmm. he was parting with some girl who offered him cocaine. He accepted. And he said within a few weeks, he was freebasing every single day. And so, it's the so, I mean, this was like, you know, mid to late. Stay the fuck away from cocaine. So, yeah, free base from cocaine to freebasing in weeks is not good. Uh, and he said that in 1984 and some of 1985, he was basically fighting solely su to support his drug habit. Yeah. Um, and so his uncle, there was a cop named Sam Williams. And his uncle basically like vouched for him in court, like pulled the judge aside and was like, you know, trying to fucking strike some deal or something. And um, basically after he'd gotten in trouble for theft and some other drug related stuff, and basically his uncle kind of like sponsored his comeback and his stint in rehab, Alvin Hayes, that is. The good behavior did not stick. 
And in late 1986, he robbed a Hazel Park party store. What the fuck is it with party stores in Detroit, bro? What is going on? Stay away from party stores. After getting in trouble for this robbery of the party store, he failed to appear in court. And that's got him sent to prison until 1993, from 1987 to 1993. Um, yeah, so, I mean, like, it's, it, this, it, this gets out of hand very quickly, needless to say. Uh, and he went from fighting once when he got out of prison to then going right back for a series of robberies and mm-hmm. staying until 2003. Uh, so he went for almost 10 years this time. And in any case, uh, he got out of prison this time in 2003. Emmanuel Stewart included him on a fight card or two uh, that was scheduled to um, at the, I'm sorry, he's included him in a fight card or two at the Joe Lewis Arena in Detroit that were official Kronk cards. And so that's kind of like the irony here is that he was never really an official Kronk member like that i guess no but that's why i said loosely affiliated but he fought on crunk cards and he had basically been taken under the wing of of emmanuel stewart at the very tail end of his career absolutely and i mentioned this article before probably on the last crunk show i think it was but teddy blackburn um famed photographer that was that's been you've seen if you're a boxing fan you've seen his work throughout the years but He's originally from Detroit. Great guy. Absolutely great guy, man. I've, you know, really legendary dude, knows a lot. And um, taking some incredible photos. Anyways, he did an article, a deep dive on visiting the Kronk in the the mid-90s. This was, I I have the magazine on around here, but like I'm so disorganized that I don't know where it is in my apartment. But I want to say it's from 94 after Holyfield beat, after Moore beat Holyfield. So that's that's around the time this article came out. Yeah. That may, yeah. Yeah. So ninety four ish. Yeah. Yeah, ninety four ish. So Teddy Blackburn visited the Kronk, and you know, like I said, he's a former amateur boxer himself. So he was just you know familiarizing himself. Runs into Booker Ward, a guy that um we've mentioned Anthony Hembrick a few yeah, times. Yeah, you just brought up Hembrick. So. So yeah, Booker Ward was the guy that absolutely obliterated Anthony Hembrick when Hembrick made his um hometown debut and tried to pull an entire MC Hammer routine for the audience. Very, very hilarious stuff, which is on YouTube. But anyways, um, so while he's there, he's, you know, just talking about the various fighters and who happened to be there, Alvin Too Sweet Hayes that day. And Hayes was training at the Kronk. So he said that they talked to him and Hayes talked about the same thing. You know, how he's been through a lot. He's trying just to get, you know, some traction in his life. No one's really trying to give him the way and that, the fact is at the Kronk, he's always felt that no one has really like liked him. He's always felt like an outcast and an outsider. And he wishes people wouldn't look at him as opposed to like that. And the most striking photo is that here's the thing about Alvin Hayes. We've talked about him. We said how he looks and how like, you know, loud and over the top he was kind of like a pre, you know, Camacho around the same time, but even more so at that point, because Camacho was still more mellowed out in this at that. But Alvin Hayes, we never talked about his dimensions, man. This dude was, like, ungainly, man. He was Tommy Hearns as a lightweight. Like, ridiculous. Tall, the longest arms you'd ever seen, and just, you know, very that type of guy, the same thing. He looked like a bunch of, like, 
uh, fishing poles kind of hung together, but for whatever reason had incredible power because of it. And Teddy Blackburn took an awesome photo on the, um, you know, the setup machine where you like put your feet under and you lay down like that of two, of two sweet hanging down and he's leaning over and he has both of his arms completely elongated. And it's the long, it's good, bro. They're just long. They just look like two long streams going out there and he's looking up at the camera. He's definitely got that kind of Mark Breland look to him for sure. Exactly. Totally. And so he's leaned over like that and he's looking up and stuff like that. And um, Blackburn mentioned, he just kind of said, you know, he kept, um, he said that Hayes kept to himself and all the other fighters at the Kronk that day just kind of glanced at them at a distance, but no one approached him. Yeah, dude. I mean, he, uh, he was a troubled guy for sure. And I mean, I think that like I, I went over his biography and you could obviously see how he could be, um, similar to, to Ricky Womack, man, this is a rough place to grow up. This is not an easy place to grow up, uh, without a serious support system. And so, you know, some of these fighters were, were given this intervention by Manny Stewart and Kronk and it worked for many of them and some of them, it it just didn't work. Um, you know, uh, Manny Stewart was actually going to include Hayes on another fight card on the Joe Lewis arena, uh, in February, 2004, he was scheduled to appear on another card. He said that he actually had a new dance routine worked up that he was going to do for the card, uh, a, a new, uh, an updated Michael Jackson dance routine. Um, but unfortunately, you know he kind of looked like too. Uh, I mean, well, he didn't look like him, but he kind of, for whatever reason, reminded me. Um, Morris Day. A little bit, yeah. Morris Day in the time. Yeah, with bit. the whole dance routine and everything going on with him. Yeah. Yeah, like colorful, like flashy. Yeah. Uh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. Well, uh, he, he was going to do a new dance routine, but unfortunately on January 19th, which was actually two years to the day after Ricky Womack died, January 19th, 2004, he died of an apparent drug overdose. Um, I couldn't find what drug it was. I couldn't find many details about it. I would imagine it was probably cocaine, but I have no idea. One of the, one of the magazines said that they thought it was intentional that I read somewhere? Uh, it would be difficult for me to dispute that. And I mean, I know he had, it was tough. It was tough. So, I mean, I, anyway, I'm not going to speculate. I have no idea. But I, I just honestly, it, it's, it's very sad. And I want to say this. I wish there was more Alvin Hayes um, footage on YouTube because I, I wish. He could punch. He was apparently a very, a very talented fighter, despite the fact that, you know, both these guys, Ricky Womack and Alvin Hayes picked up boxing later in life than a lot of fighters do. And also on top of that, um, you know, I mentioned it earlier. We mentioned it in that first episode uh, about the Kronk that this, they really specialized in the amateur system. That was the whole, that was kind of part of the draw of Kronk gym very early on, especially was that a lot of these fighters had been fighting for a while or had been fighting as amateurs for a while, had a lot of experience. And these two fighters were an exception to that for sure. But nonetheless, we're, we're very talented. Extremely man. And it's sad because not just with Kronk, you can go with any type of gym in any place around there. Like the same story goes on with a lot of places, but I mean, 
again, you know, guys like um, like Alvin Two Sweet Hayes or Ricky Womack and others that we've covered and stuff like that. These are just stories that we're just putting out there again for people to know because they were talented fighters. They were very good fighters. And unfortunately their careers got cut short for one reason or another, but we're here to tell their story now because like if they were able to fulfill their careers the way it should have been, everyone would be talking about it today, you know? Yeah. Within the span of a couple of years, um, Manny Stewart wound up having to kind of pay tribute to a couple of the fighters from Kronk. Yeah. And that fight card that Alvin Hayes was supposed to fight on wound up turning into a tribute card for him, which is, yeah. you know, just another kind of layer of the sadness of it, I suppose. But well, it's interesting because if he actually would continue with that career, he probably would have stood with Stewart at that point because where else would he would have gone? You know what I mean? Stewart, as, as much as he did bounce around in the, in the 80s and whatever it was, like in Stewart was a familiar face and someone that would have guided him. And at that point in his life and where he was trying to do his career, probably someone that he would have felt the most secure with. Yeah, no, like, uh, no question. And that was also kind of something that Manny Stewart had done. We had mentioned in that first episode when fighters <laughs> of his had gotten into trouble, he didn't just drop them. Totally. He, he didn't just, uh, he didn't just say, well, you know, you're on your own. He stuck with them. He tried to get them help. He, uh, I mean, I can't speak across the board because perhaps some of them did things that were, you know, didn't merit help, but he, from almost everything I'm, I'm seeing was sticking by his fighters and doing everything he could to set them on a straight and narrow, put them on the right path, whatever you want to call it. And some of them it just didn't take. And unfortunately these were two fighters where it didn't take. Is what it is, man. Yeah. Story of life with this with this sport. Yeah. Well, that's why we're we have so many episodes of the true crime shit and why it's 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 I mean it's fast I don't know if fascinating is the right word to use, but like I it, it's that's what it feels like for me, you know, trying to like learn about their lives, learning about their careers, being able to tell their stories is always something I'm just like I enjoy doing that, you know what I mean for myself. It's it, and I'm sure yeah. you do that's why we do it. So well, and, and I mean, you know, uh, apart from the boxing aspect of it, too, I, I know that you watch like true crime programs. And Dude, the only reason why I still have cable is because I, I, I watch Discovery ID. If there's and, a way I can like get that without having cable, I would do it in a heartbeat. And I don't really I don't watch a lot of that stuff, but I do watch some of it. I do every so often watch some like, you know, uh, cold case stuff and and stuff like that. And also I just have in general cold case files was that was that show man that in american justice yeah the, yeah, we, the a and e show narrate, was I, good. I used to narrate it bill miller bill 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 curtis that was his name bill curtis, something like that but he had the best voice and the way he just narrated was perfect yeah <laughs> in this sleepy illinois town yeah it was oh, like yeah yeah yeah, dude, yeah, yeah. Right. i will I, I watch some of that stuff too, and it's fascinating to me. And also, like uh, psychology, criminal psychology in general, also fascinating. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, and like I said at the beginning, it's not that we're celebrating it, and it's not that we're getting our kicks off of it or anything like that. But it's just something we like to uh, explore, remember, make sure that people know the whole story. Um, oh. And that's that's at least part of it for me too. Is that people move on at least have a, some more facts rather than the, just the rumors and repeat exactly things and just true. repeat things that are not true and what do you just hear on the thing oh so-and-so was a bad guy and he was a drug addict and blah 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 not nah. 
there's always a bunch exactly. of side layers to this story, man. Give everybody right. a whole piece of how they got to where they did. All right. Well, and that's that's why it's important to me to get into a little bit of the biography so that people understand that like this is oh, not really. just like some fucking rich kid who blah blah blah. You know, this is these people are coming up rough. Not well, can, a lot of the people we're talking about on these true crime episodes are coming up rough, I should say. Totally. With all that said, um, the next guy that we're discussing now from a lot of people I've discussed with, I've talked to, I've talked to Emmanuel Stewart. I've talked to Sugar Hell. Hell, I've talked to Tommy Hearns. And they all universally agreed that he was the baddest man to ever come out of the Kronk Gym. And, you know, surprise, not surprisingly, his nickname was Superbad. Talking about Bernard Mays. Yeah, Bernard, super bad maze, dude. And I mean, like, that's an era, too, with the late 1970s and early 1980s for middleweights. Like, you know, right in the thick of it. Like, you know, it's it it was an, uh, I don't want to say it was a transitional era because it was like, you had Marvin Hagler, obviously, but you had the transition from Monson to Hagler. But then, like, you had a lot of the action going on at welterweight, too. So, I mean, like, you know, it's a fun era to talk about. It is. And, and like you said, the era between Munzon to Hagler's coronation, that's not an era that's talked about a lot, man. Like, because it's, not, it's kind of forgetful. You know what I mean? You had Hugo Coro, Rodrigo Valdez. Once, Hag once Munzon retired, Valdez kind of fell off the wayside. And so he lost to Coro. Vito went to Fermo, Alan Minter. And, eh, you know, it's more or less a forgettable era. But... Bernard Mays was, you know, probably the biggest what if you can imagine. If, if there's not much footage of him out there, there's really not. I know there's something on YouTube that like surfaced recently within the past year or so, but you can tell he's, you know, from all descriptions, he's kind of past it at this point. But like from everyone that I've talked to, from Emmanuel Seward to Tommy Hearns, who sparred with him countless times, to Sugar Hill, who's carrying on the Conk legacy to anyone else affiliated with that gym. Bernard Superbad Maze might have been the best, absolute peak, just pound for pound, the best prong fighter that ever stepped in that gym. And that is saying something. I mean, when you think of that, like that's just mind blowing to think of, considering the level of talent that's come through that gym. But another thing that should be said too, and I'm, you know, I'll let you add on to this, Emmanuel Stewart used to say that Bernard Maze was the first fighter that he started from scratch and kind of built for himself, like his own personal project. Like, this was his own, like, you know, building a Frankenstein type of deal, right? I, I, yes. And I don't really know that much about his upbringing. Like, I don't really know too no, much about neither his... do I. What, from what I, from what I, not to, not to cut you up, but like, no, from what yeah, I know please. is that, like, the story from, and this off the top of my head, the story is that, like, Stewart was, you know, he was training, he was still laying the amateur scene. This was the year before Tom, obviously, before Tommy Hearns and Ken T and others came on the, uh, the pro scene, but like Stewart was still, you know, building his thing. And at this point, like you said, the Kronk Rec Center, not just the boxing gym, but like they had a lot of things going on, including right. all yep. the kids would go there and, you know, do various activities. Yeah, it was almost like an after school. Yeah. Yeah. Like when I used to go to the Boys, boys and, and Girls, girls Club, club when something. I was a kid. Totally, totally. Because the Boys and Girls Club offered boxing when my old trainer, who had, who had a long history in New England and amateur boxing in general, and he held his gym and he was an elder statesman, but I used to go play bowling. I was playing pool, whatever, you know, everything else. Um, when Emmanuel Stewart, who was, you know, working with the Kronk at that point, went over there to go just wander around one day, he found Bernard Mays, correct me if I'm wrong, um, with his friend swimming, correct? Something like that, yeah. Something like that, yeah. And asked him, hey, are you guys interested in learning how to box? 
and Mays, you know, agreed and took to it. And then from there, they, um, they started this relationship. But Mays was a kid when Seward found it. And he, by the time he was in his early teens, he was already like almost prodigious. You know, he was a prodigy. Yes, totally. Yeah. And Stewart said this was his project. He started him from the ground up just, and, you know, uh, how did he, um, I watched, I watched Rocky one the other day on the train, not on the train, on the, on the plane going to Austin. So what did Mickey say? I want to take all this knowledge and give it to you, right? That's kind of what Stewart did with, with Bernard Mays. He had everything he'd had from his amateur career, everything like that. And he just kind of poured everything yet because it was the summertime. He said it was kind of quiet. A lot of kids weren't really trying to be in a gym. They wanted to be outside, but Mays went to him and he was able to, you know, to cultivate that. Like he was, this is his pet project. And he just built him from the ground up, man. And it's just like. It, it's not the best analogy. But I, I did think about this the other day, and it kind of reminded me, like when reading a little bit about Superbad Maze and his story, it reminds me a little bit of Nipper Pat Daly. And again, yes. like it's the not boy. the same. The child because, prodigy, right? Yeah, because I mean, like you look at, you go look up Nipper Pat Daly's uh, story for anybody who's, who's listening or watching. It's pretty wild, dude. Like, like I mean, if I just tell you, dude, I, I actually learned about him from you. I think in your earlier posts and like, like the early days of Twitter, when with, with the boxing history stuff, because I think you did like a deep dive on him, didn't you? It's I've I've posted about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, like um, a dude named I, I think his name's Alex Daly, who was like his like great great nephew or grand nephew or you know some some sort of whatever yeah yeah deep lineage somewhere yeah he's, he's some sort of relation to him wrote a book about nipper pat daly and then there's been a website and the, anyway the whole point is i'll try to sum it up and i'll sum it up in a way that makes it sound the craziest even though it's true this dude turned pro when he was like nine years old and was totally fucking washed up by the time he was 16 or 17. <laughs> Nipper Pat Daly, that is. And so that that's kind of, and, and the whole like story goes that he was like, you know, fighting grown men, fighting whatever. And, but it's true. It's true. Yeah. There's no lie to it. So go look that up. And anyway, Super Bad Maze kind of, the story reminds me a little bit of that. Just oh, because yeah. uh, he was supposedly so good at such a, at such a young age. Uh, you know, at only 14 years old, he was, uh, let's see, it says right here, he swept to victory in the 106-pound class of the National Junior Olympic Tournament. Two years later, repeated in the 139-pound division. Uh, he fought more than 200 times as an amateur. Uh, he lost only once. I mean, and it, it's difficult to substantiate amateur records. Keep that in mind. You know, sure. most of them are self-reported. Most of them are, you know, like they and don't especially keep track back of that then like too, that. because you're not really sure what's a smoker, what's considered a smoker, or just like right. an yeah, exactly, yeah, what counts, what doesn't count, totally. and on top of totally. that, how many, how many years or decades or whatever have been people have people been talking about Ray Robinson never lost as an amateur, but it's like you can go boom, 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 boom. These are his losses right here. They're in the newspaper. You know, it's like anyway, it, it, a lot of amateur records are self-reported, so take them with a grain of salt. It's more the it's more the bulk that's important, you know. Like not, he fought two hundred times and his record was two hundred no. Like it, that's not even the record's not important. It's the fact that he fought two hundred times. Like that's fucking wild. So anyway, um, he had an extensive amateur career 
and was an incredible amateur, except for by the time he was 16 and he had won that 130 pound, 139 pound tournament, he was literally already on the verge of alcoholism and was drinking. And, and even so, even after he had an affinity for old English from what I read. Yeah, it was, uh, over here, it says Colt 45. Oh, one of them. Either way, I, I, I've dabbled it's, either way, I it's, think, we, it's I think about, we've all dabbled with them back in the day, man. It's about the same, dude. It's roughly the same. They're both malt liquor. They'll both fuck you up. They both taste like absolute shit. They're both dirt cheap. Like it's King Cobra, Mickey's, same shit. It's exact same shit, you know. So, um, but yeah, and then like the the other layer to this kind of story is right around the same time. Uh, supposedly Tommy Hearns had just won the national AAU title and super bad maze. The reason why Tommy Hearns nose looks like it does even now is that super bad maze crushed his nose in the gym during a sparring session one day, yes. not long after Tommy Hearns had won the title. So when I, I, um, I met Tom, the one time I had a one-on-one with Tommy Hearns is when he got inducted into the Boston Hall of Fame. And anytime, because again, you know me. Like did you do the fist casting? Yeah, back then I did. Oh my, on Tommy Hearns? On Tommy Hearns, I did. Jesus Christ. Yeah. That, that you just, your hand touched a perfectly assembled lethal weapon. Yes. Like I completely got it ready and coded it up ready for it to be like casted. And we talked for it. And when the thing is, when I did the fist That's casting, wild, I was dude. the one who was like, why the Vaseline, the hands up. So it like besides the person who actually held the hand in there for a while to like cast it, I was like the second in charge in terms of yeah, you're you're getting intimate, play. you're getting in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm gonna definitely ask my questions. So besides giving the pleasantries, hey man, you're one of my favorites. I love you, blah, blah, blah. Like Yeah, talk- right. You're like in 1976 on November 1st. <laughs> now the, literally the first one of the very first fights I remember ever watching with my dad is then what made me like get all excited was that like to see his eyes light up when tommy hearns was on tv because remember how you would talk about how you and i talked about how like hearns appeared randomly on a couple of like chavez or just like pay-per-view don king pay-per-view undercards in the mid 90s yeah just yeah so i remember one of them i watched my dad was one of the first pay-per-views i watched with him and tommy hearns was on and he opened up the fight and opened up the show. My dad had no idea. He was like, oh, man, wow, this is Tommy Hearns, blah, 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 blah. And he was all excited. Like, I would be for wrestling, so I got excited, too. And he was like, Harris, watch. He knocks everybody out in the first round or just right around there. You're going to see, boom, boom. And he ended up knocking out, I think it was Dan Ward, poor guy, just blasted him in the first round. And then when I watched that, I was excited, too. I was like, wow, wow, man, you know. And he held his hands up, and I was throwing punches and all that. So Hearns became one of my favorites automatically. But fast forward all these years later, I'm at the Hall of Fame. So we're, we're talking about that. And then I bring up Super Bad Maze. Because anybody I know that's affiliated with the Kronk or affiliated with Detroit and would know about him, I just want to know because it's fascinating to me. Like, here's a guy that's this really, there's almost no footage of him. And there is footage out there, like, but it's kind of like um, Gypsy Joe Harris. It, it's not out there. You know what I mean? You know there's footage, but there's only like a blip of the person on YouTube or something. But like, the meat and potatoes that you really know will show them at their full powers that you're just like, it's not, it's not out there. So I want to know, I want to pick your brain. Tell me about him. Were you around? Do you know him? Whatever. So obviously Tommy Hearns, like you said, he got his nose busted by him. So we knew him quite well. So I asked him about it. I was like, yo man, you know, Bernard Mays, can you, can you tell me something? 
And Hearn's got this big smile on his face. He wrapped his arm around me. He was like, yo, man, that was my man. I love that guy to death. You know, he was amazing, yada, yada, yada. And he also said, too, he was like, you whipped my ass. Like, you know, Hayes, um, he didn't, Hearns didn't tell me this personally, but I've read in other accounts. Hayes used to beat him so bad that Hearns questioned if he should continue boxing from there. That's how good Bernard Mays was at one point, man. Like, and, and Pat, here's the thing, too, man, that's kind of mind-blowing. Like you said, he was, already on, he was already at the cusp of alcoholism as a teenager. By the time at this point, he was like, you know, when his, when his amateur career was ending and he was turning pro, he was, he was already, like, full-blown into that. He was wrecked. He was way past his best. Beer is, like, the worst pot. Like, it's just so many, it's so many carbs and, 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 and calories. Like, you could just drink beer, vodka like or it's one thing to be drinking Bud Light, and I'm not much of a beer drinker, but it's one thing to be drinking that stuff. Yeah, just drink a whole straight up malt liquor. 40s, bro. 40s yeah, straight up man. malt liquor. I used to drink 40s when, like, I, back in the day when That's I was- That's, like, all you can get. Totally. Because you're yeah. underage. <laughs> like, I, you know, I, I, drew, I drew a taste for oldie in the day, and I like Colt 45. I couldn't drink that shit today, but back then, totally. Yeah, you, like, dude, you'd drink that shit with this look on your face. You'd be like, even yeah <laughs> uh, you'd choke it down i know i remember we've all been there but totally. oh bro but like as far as like an athlete you know what i'm saying like a world just, class was, like that's like the like worst said, fucking you know, thing yeah man and and it broke him down and it's sad man because like he had a, such a stellar amateur career and he looked so good and he was whooping everyone in the gym and he was and everyone like he's at this point of like mythical proportions even before he turns pro and then like by the time he turns pro he's past it you know he it's already been established that he has issues that like you know he has issues with the bottle and other various things going on but he still has like a, a pretty good pro career going on like he still runs his record up to a very you know dominating well, everyone that he fights at that point which says well it, it says a couple things i think it says a lot about his talent for sure Mm -hmm. uh because he got to the record that he got to he won um it was like 39 or 40 straight fights or something like or whatever it was he won a number of fights in a row and i mean part of that was his talent part of it was that a lot of the fighters he was fighting just sucked their records were not good um so the i mean one, that was also part of it but it but, he fought a draw with was tough though ted sanders that's that, true that was that that dude that dude was actually a legit guy he gave alex ramos his first loss and he gave everyone else help but there like, were a couple yeah, of fighters couple. that he fought that were pretty actually pretty good but not that many totally. and and i think that the other thing that uh makes it a little bit more impressive and i think speaks to his talent is is the fact that he dropped manny stewart as he turned pro when yep. he turned pro, he had broke from Manny Stewart because Manny Stewart wouldn't stop, you know, getting on him about drinking because he would apparently disappear. He'd like, uh, you know, just he wouldn't come train. And so he'd go drink and then it would be like he'd like the study the night before the test. Like, you know, he'd come in last minute and train and get in shape for the fight and go fight. But but uh, then finally, when he went to go turn pro, I don't know the entire story, but I could hear Manny Stewart probably saying some shit like you're not ready. You know, like you need to, you need to get, stop drinking. If you're going to turn pro, and he was probably like, fuck that. Didn't want to stop drinking. And he didn't stop drinking. So he turned pro. Um, I don't remember who it was that he had gotten with. I looked at some point, but he had gotten with somebody else uh, when he turned pro and fought under their 
guidance for a handful of years, but drank literally the entire time. And that took its toll. You know, it really did, man. And they said, um, obviously, um, with his one loss, that um, what happened was, was that, um, excuse me, he doubled over in pain from like, you know, getting hit in the body at one point like that. And they realized that like his body from all the drinking that he had been doing, being alcoholic, like just taking one shot to the gut over there, just had him like kind of ruptured his, not ruptured, but like completely, you know, took him out. Yeah. He had like, he had pancreatitis. He had inflammation of the pancreas. So he had no business being in the ring at first. No. Yeah. Like he, uh, he either, they weren't doing blood work or something because I would imagine that, uh, that for the most part, the uh, organ damage that he apparently incurred would have been picked up by blood work. But also, you know, we've talked about this on other shows too, where we talk, where uh, I mentioned Mancini Kim and how that was the turning point. It was main, not to get to on too much of a tangent here, but Mancini Kim was really the catalyst for uh, electroencephalograms, EEG, brain scans, prior to fights for title fights for, I believe it was the WBA first and then the WBC, but in any case, they made it the norm. Um, but it, even so, you know, like blood work, you like, they can't afford to get blood work done for like every fighter who fights. Are you kidding me? Otherwise fights wouldn't happen. So, you know, my, I imagine they probably didn't pick that up and shit, but yeah, he wind up, he wound up having inflammation of the pancreas and severe liver damage from all the drinking that he had done over the years. And so that led to him having to stop fighting and gosh, I'd have to bring up his thing real quick here in 1985, November of 1985 is his single loss by second round knockout uh, to a dude named Matthew Lewis at the forum in Inglewood. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's fairly unceremonious. He never really got in with anybody who was uh, a serious ranked contender beyond uh, Ted Sanders wasn't like a ranked contender, but he was a, he was a good kind of journeyman. And he beat also, he beat, um, he beat shock on uh, Oscar Alvarado, who was That's a, uh, true. Former, yeah, he beat a former junior middleweight champion. But by that time, Alvarado was completely cooked himself. So right, like I'm not sure how much that actually earned him. You know, as a, no, that's just a name on the record at that point. Totally. But you know what's sad too is that again, uh, Ring Magazine coming in. This is how you learn about these guys. I learned about him from this. Well, you know, um, uh, what what part is it that they always do? I think like either round one or one of those one of those parts in the magazine that they they had it and they had a little obituary well no it wasn't obituary it was just um it, it was like the blurb where they give you the outside of the news like all the bad stuff that happened so and so got arrested this one's happening with this blah blah blah, blah. yeah you know oh, what I'm, outside I, the ropes i know like, yeah that's what, yeah I think that's that what, it been what it was outside the yep, ropes. you're right outside yes yes so in that point they had a photo of may's knocking uh fighting ted sanders and um it said too that like you know, they mentioned that he had passed away and i think they said they withered to like 80 pounds at that point that is dead like yeah i think he had like you know like a bloated belly and just everything like oh man it's just tragic absolutely tragic yeah. and it's crazy to think man because like i like i mentioned i've talked to tommy hearns when i talked to emmanuel stewart i put up photos when i i've mentioned this before you've mentioned this bro like Anybody who ever met Emmanuel Stewart, rest in peace, if you had a chance to talk to him, he would talk your ear off. He didn't care who you were. 
All right. He was just a lovable person who wanted to talk boxing with anybody. And, you know, I didn't want to talk about Lennox Lewis and the normal stuff. I wanted to know about super bad maze and some of those other guys. So I would talk about that. And the smile that he got on his face, like bringing back memories and talking about how good he was and what he was able to do. Cause that's like asking somebody and that's like, even just asking it, like, it's like, you're like letting them know, like you're a real one. Like, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah All right. for sure, for okay. sure. Totally. Totally. And thank God my dad was there to like cover when I was talking to Stuart a few times because he would always get like, you know, you, you could see the look on his face. He was just like really, really reminiscent and happy about it. And it wasn't any sadness. There was like no hint of sadness or whatever. Like he was like almost proud of what he was able to build with it, you know? And the fact that the guy is like a crunk legend up until this day, that's like, you know, everybody knows, hey man, super bad, super bad. You know what I mean? Like that, that name still holds recognition. And then years later, when um, I used to work a lot of Adonis Stevenson fights, you know, for CompuBox and mm-hmm. actually, be on, you know, be covered for it. Yeah, a lot of people That's forget well. that he was with Kronk. He was, yeah, he was, a, yeah. Before Emmanuel Stewart died, you would see him in the corner with him and then Sugar Hill, Sugar Hill took over. But yes, totally. And um, I remember, I, I don't remember what fight it was. It might've been Tony Bellew. It might've been a different one, whatever it was. But we were on the same, we we're on the same flight. We got off together, we were walking. And then I asked him too, he's holding, he's Sugar Hill decked out head to toe on Kronk gear, has the Kronk bag on him and everything. And I was like, yo man, can I just ask you a question? And he was like, yeah, go ahead. I was like, super bad maze, how, how good were you? And he looked at me and he smiled, he goes, he was the best. He's absolutely the best, ain't no one messing with him. And I was like, really? That's so yeah. crazy. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. the talent that's come through Kronk and then for somebody totally. to say that like, you know, for unequivocally like Sugar Hill too, who's like younger than Stewart and like, his seeing everything that come through and like he didn't even hesitate bro he didn't hesitate right away he smiled and said he was the absolute best he said he was the absolute best and yeah, i was like, nuts dude i was like is there footage of him he said yeah i got some tapes but you know and i was like and i'm just sitting there like you know like a cartoon character my with my tongue hanging yeah. out like i want to know more tell me tell me please send me you these know? tapes sir yeah anything that's, <laughs> this yeah, is my that's Harry's crazy almost like but nah man that was that was so cool to see that like he's still he's held in such high regard so it's sad to see what happened but i mean like think of the legacy that he still left the well, choice and, that, yeah it, well and so he, after he was forced to stop fighting because he had so much uh he had so much uh organ damage he had to go live with his mom and then his mom wound up passing away and uh he was sent to live in a nursing home in detroit when the nursing home is where he wound up where he wound up dying um in 1994 his he wound up going into cardiac arrest because his organs just couldn't couldn't work anymore and uh yeah so i mean like he died a very early death super untimely death unfortunately because of his alcoholism and wine and i think that he was buried in an unmarked grave i'm not sure if he still is not sure if that's ever been taken care of but uh you know that's unfortunately also just one of those another one of those legacies from 100 years earlier of fighters dying destitute and being put in an unmarked grave yeah man you know and there's been there's been times over the years with a lot of organizations thankfully that have been able to rectify that um, yeah john DeSanto, philly boxing history yes. has done a number of them i think ring eight has done a couple of them totally totally yeah i remember king gavlin got his um got a proper grave um Tyrone Everett got a proper grave. I want to say Gypsy Joe Harris was another one. What was the old, the old timey one? I want to say it was, uh, um, 
young Griffo, who I was, okay. he might be right. yeah, who was, I want to say his, his, his grave was paid for by gosh, dude, I might be getting my wires crossed here, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's kind it, of, a, it's, it's a nice it's a little, sad tradition. I know that like Hank Kaplan used to be heavily involved in things like that as well. Back in his day, uh, the great historian, you know, like it, it's good when, when boxing's old timer, when boxing's legit like fans you know and historians come together and try to like you know make things right so yeah well and i mean there's th that is a good part of the the trish tradition is that uh between the international boxing research organization and just also just the subculture mm -hmm. of history mm -hmm. folks in boxing that's definitely one of the good aspects of it is that uh often we're able to kind of pool together and uh totally. yeah anyway yeah it's it's unfortunate that a lot of these fighters wind up meeting a similar end and super bad maze never really even got the chance to put forth what these other fighters did you know they he left cronk left steward and, and you know and, and, and that was kind um, of his undoing apart from the alcohol too totally and it's and again he's the probably the biggest what if you know considering how everybody talks about him and you anyone from that time period i'm sure his name has been passed on. The stories have been passed on throughout the decades to all the other generations. Hell, I bet you if you ask Tyson Fury, if you know who Superbad Maze is, I'm sure he knows the he story. Might, yeah, absolutely. He has to. You know, um, it it's that type. It's that type of thing, and um, it makes you wonder: was if he was able to control his vices, or if, you know, other different circumstances, what he was able to accomplish? Because if he was able to hold the same way he did as an amateur, you know, into the pro ranks, because again, as a pro, look, we did, we looked at his record and you see how successful he was, albeit like not the toughest competition, but like still, but that, that he like, was a full blown alcoholic during his pro career. And he was like still able to do it. You know? yeah, but, but middleweight it, yeah. it like the late eighties and shit, dude, that's, he could have, he could have been in that. He could have been in on that. Easily, easily. Mid to no late eighties after. Yeah. No question. So, after Hagler was out and Ray Leonard was basically not in. Yeah, dude, he could have been in on that. No question. Yep. Man. Oh, dude. You know, Kronk has so much history behind it. So many great fighters have gone through Kronk gym in Detroit. And obviously, uh, for the most part, the fighters that we've talked about thus far, they don't really fall under that umbrella of like great fighters. But nonetheless, you know, they, they have their own stories. They deserve to be remembered. And this kind of tradition, you know, it's the tradition of Kronk Jim serving the community. You know, there's all sorts of stories and totally. they need to be told. And that's what we're here for. <laughs> totally, man. Hey, dude, well, I appreciate it because once more, we were able to tell a couple more stories that generally aren't going to get told. So I appreciate it, dude. I know you did your homework and I tried oh, to yeah, do mine. Man, we, both, we both did our stuff, man, you know, and I'm hopefully that we, uh, we did these guys justice. I and so. obviously, man, seriously, rest in peace to them too, man, because these are all just fallen soldiers that deserve that their names, their names deserve to be remembered. You know what I mean? They, they're not as popular as some of the other names, you know, that everybody knows throughout history, but doesn't mean that they don't deserve to be remembered and talked about. So totally 100%. Mm -hmm. You know, anybody who stuck with us this entire time, we do appreciate you. If you listened in via any of the podcast apps, please do subscribe, leave us a comment. Those things are appreciated for sure. If you watched on YouTube, thank you so much. Also subscribe on YouTube, reply with comments, questions, 
I mean, I, if we can, we'd happy to, we'd be happy to, to get to them and stuff. So yeah. Also, uh, as far as social media goes, knuckles and gloves podcast is on both Facebook and Instagram. We're also on Twitter individually. We're on Twitter too. Eris is on Twitter as punch zone. Eris, me, Patrick, I'm there as Patrick M Connor. So please follow us there and say hello, Eris. We'll talk soon, bro. Absolutely, man. Take care, everybody. Later, everybody. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.